Let's say your company was looking to hire an employee. What kind of qualities would you look for in the candidate? You'd probably want a problem solver. You turn around and you have to just try to solve the problem in front of you that you haven't seen until that very moment. Definitely somebody who's experienced. But looking back, I grew and learned things and had to get through some serious fear. And somebody who is dedicated to her job. Because I do put a lot of time into the problem solving. It sounds like we have our perfect person. But the interview, it might not go so well. Could I explain to people that aren't climbers what it's like to be with Mike Lebecki in the middle of nowhere and talk about a stressful situation that you've never been in and all these coping mechanisms you use and they would just look at you like you're crazy. Before we get to the show, we're sending congratulations and we're also wishing luck because two of our Meister fans, Andy and Amy, are southbound on the Appalachian Trail trying to through-hike it this summer. Best of luck and congratulations to both of you. We look forward to hearing how everything transpires. For the rest of you, if you'd like to announce something on the show, go to our support page at mtnmeister.com. You can buy the shout-out package. This helps support us, so thanks. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Mountain Meister. I am Ben, this voice right now. The other voice is Angie Payne. Hello, Angie. Hi, thanks for having me. And is it is it Angie or Angela? I see both names very frequently. <laughs> um, it's definitely Angie. Uh, I was supposed to be Angela, but my kindergarten teacher called me Angie, and it never went back. Never so left. Okay, <laughs> Angie. My mom. Payne. My mom wishes it was Angela, but it's Angie. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to start things off with an introduction from Mike Lebecki, who wanted to hear you on the show. Mike said. She's a pretty pretty special special woman, and she's done some really cool stuff. And I've seen her break through some interesting walls, both uh, literally and metaphorically. (laughs) And she's um, a world-class boulder and climber, and um, I think she'd be great to talk to. And um, yeah, she's a pretty special woman. Those are some nice words from Mike, huh? Yeah, he's a pretty nice guy. He is a nice guy. (laughs) He's a really nice guy. (laughs) For the listeners, if you don't know Angie, she's a climber in Boulder who lives in Boulder, Colorado. She's hardly the only one. (laughs) She is, however, the first woman to climb a V13. That's about 12 Vs higher than me. Uh, She does a lot of indoor competitions, outdoor climbing. Born in Cincinnati, Ohio. I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, not too far away. Nice. Yeah. Flatlander, yes. Yeah, Flatlander. <laughs> Although there are some definitely rolling hills. Yeah, that's true. There windy are. roads, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, your name is Angie Payne, and we like to talk about names on this show. Um, okay. Your name is almost an oxymoron, uh, Angel then Payne. That's true, I guess. <laughs> never thought of it that way. <laughs> really? You've never thought of that? I've never thought of that, no. Wow. Well, so what can you tell us about your name? Anything? Um, I really like my name, uh, my last name. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I've never really been in love with my first name, honestly. Um, the more I think about it, we were just talking about last names last night and uh, with my friends. I'm quite attached to the name Payne, and I don't think I'll ever change it. I'll never take my husband's name. Uh-huh. I, I'm declaring that now on a podcast. <laughs> Great. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> breaking news. Yes, breaking news. I will always be Angie Payne. Um, yeah, that's. I, I don't really have much background behind it. Um, like I said, my mom wanted me to be Angela, and that changed my first day of kindergarten. Um, oh, here's an interesting thing. My my whole family calls me Ange. Ah. Um, but I really only like it when particular people that are close to me call me that. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so it's like kind by of the one end of those of the, things. End of the interview, I'll call you Ange. <laughs> yeah, and then I'll <laughs> and then I'll sign off. No, right. I'm kidding. <laughs> so yeah, I I have a lot of different names, but certain you know certain people call me. And most people call me Angie. Yeah. So other other unique names that we've had on the show, um, we had a slackliner on, and her first name was Faith. That's very appropriate. That's good, yeah. Uh, a skier with the last name Hammer. Oh, yeah. that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. And a husband and wife combo who climb together essentially all the time with the last name Smiley, which is why they're so happy. <laughs> <laughs> so my uh, my... Last name, um, Payne, obviously. My dad actually is Dr. Payne, so that's kind of funny. Wow. Yeah. So everybody always thought when I was growing up, everybody thought that was entertaining at least. Did he have any trouble getting business? I don't think so, but if he had been an anesthesiologist, he might have. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I think I said this on the show once before. My my dentist as a child, uh, his last name was Thornbleed, Dr. Thornbleed. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah, I don't I don't know how again how he got any business at all. Yeah. Um well, so you've had uh some unique jobs you were telling me about before the show. Uh a veterinary assistant for 7 years, which I believe you snuck in. You said that was your favorite job? Uh yeah, I think that was my favorite job. It was uh just one that I never really I never dreaded going there, and I think that's a pretty good sign. You know, I always really looked forward to it because I love the animals. And it was it was a really small clinic in Boulder, and so it had a family feel to it. So everybody who came there was really loyal and had been there for a long time. So And you did this while professionally climbing, correct? Um, I did this, so it was from the very beginning, almost the very beginning of my college years, mm-hmm. uh, all the way through until I was – done with school and I was sort of professionally climbing but it wasn't obviously my main form of income it was just sort of a side thing Mm -hmm. so I don't know if I would have called it my primary profession at the time but I was doing all I was doing school working at the animal clinic and climbing and competing all at the same time do you like having a few different things going on like that now you're just a full-time climber right yeah i yes now i'm only climbing and yeah i do like having more things going on it it gave me a little bit more focus when i when it came time to climb i felt more focused Mm. and it was a little bit better when i had just work and climbing or just school and climbing having three things that you're trying to do really well is pretty hard but I do like having the balance of something else and right now I'm sort of I guess I don't really have that right now I just have mostly have climbing so that's challenging sometimes yeah as as weird as that sounds I know everybody who's you know I don't mean to sound spoiled it's it's an awesome life and I don't really have complaints I just also sometimes feel like I could focus a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. 
I think that's a very human emotion. I feel that a lot too. And I'm sure our listeners do as well. The other job that we absolutely 100% need to talk about, and you know what I'm about to say. So endoscopy tech for 11 months. Tell our listeners what you did there. Uh, Yes. So that was, I worked for a gastroenterologist and he did upper endoscopies and colonoscopies all day long. So he's the guy who sticks tubes in people. Mm -hmm. And... I was the tech that got to be in the room for the whole procedure, all of the procedures. Mm -hmm. So I basically watched colonoscopies all day long for 11 months. So many puns (laughs) that I could use right now. Yes, so many. (laughs) We'll avoid them. However, I have just a fascinating thing to tell you about colonoscopies. We talk a lot about uh, human behavior on this show. Okay. And, okay. I don't even know. You don't know where I'm going with this, but it's no, great. I don't. Okay. So there is an experiment done on um, how we feel about events depending on how they end. Okay. So like the end result okay. of a of a situation, right. and they used colonoscopies as an experiment. And Group A, I don't have this written down, so just bear with me. Group sure. A gets a very long colonoscopy. I believe it was like 45 minutes long. Does that sound like a long colonoscopy? That's really long. Yeah. So yes. a very long colonoscopy. <laughs> but the most painful part of the procedure was in the middle. And okay. then throughout the end, like the last 20 minutes of it, it was very it, it was very easy for the, the patient. Okay. Then group B had a normal, I think it was like a 20-minute colonoscopy. Does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay. And they finished on the most painful part of the procedure. And actually, that most painful part wasn't as painful as what Group A experienced in the middle. Okay, got it. So you would think that Group B would reflect on the colonoscopy uh, much more positively because not only was the procedure shorter, but they also didn't experience that high level of pain that Group A had. right? Right. Yet... Group B explained the procedure as much more miserable because they <laughs> ended on that painful note. Yep, yep. I Isn't can see that. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I mm-hmm. mean, oh, it's interesting how medicine and things like that, you can do all these you know, social experiments, yeah. basically. <laughs> but I watched that happen a lot, actually. <laughs> right, you, you yeah. got a first-hand <laughs> look at it. I saw that, yes, in... In practice and yeah it's really interesting and gosh at the animal clinic too just the oh yeah the people point. you know the people are the things that are always the most interesting you'd think that the animals would be the ones that were crazy but <laughs> typically it's the people yeah right <laughs> so yeah it's been a lot of entertainment a lot of sociological entertainment yeah and <laughs> maybe you have a future in that yeah that was actually my undergrad was in sociology oh, so okay I am definitely interested in that kind of stuff. It's nice. Yeah. We got to talk about climbing at some point, I guess. So, I guess so. <laughs> well, <laughs> let me preface this by saying my technical knowledge of climbing, even though we've had 
140 people on this show and probably half of them climber. My technical knowledge of climbing is about next to nothing. That's fine. So is mine. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. You just battle through it. Um, But apart from the technical side of the sport, there are all these parallels. And that's really what this show is about, is how we can tie back what you do to our everyday life. So anyway, something that I didn't know about climbing in these competitions is that when you are presented with this bouldering route in a competition, you have no idea what that route looks like, right? You have no idea what's coming. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. And these, uh, so in the World Cup competitions and most of the competitions that we do in the U.S. for bouldering, it's called on-site format. So you walk out and you turn around and you have to just try to solve the problem in front of you that you haven't seen until that very moment. So right. it's pretty crazy. In the certain formats, in the final round, you will get a little preview of it ahead of time. But for the qualifiers and the semifinals, you don't see anything beforehand. You're kept in isolation, and then you're brought out, wow. and you turn around, and you just have to deal with whatever's there. <laughs> I think that's really cool because I've heard I've heard it being called a, co- or a uh, problem before. And right. <laughs> I, I liked that, except I didn't really understand why it was exactly a problem if you knew what the root was. But now right. that I un- now that I understand that it's an actual problem that you don't like, you need to solve. <laughs> yep. the terminology makes sense. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's a really big problem when you turn around, and <laughs> depending on what it is, <laughs> right. some are more problematic than others. But yeah, it's a really interesting format. I quite like it actually. Um, it's just you have five minutes of really, really intense mental and physical effort. And then you get to rest five minutes and then you go back out and do it all again with another problem. So it's a really interesting experience, honestly. And it's always changing and it's ever really getting easier. (laughs) (laughs) So, so when I guess, uh, in outdoor bouldering, when a rock or a boulder has already been, climbed is it it still known as a bouldering problem like because people know how to do it don't they yeah it is still called a problem but um obviously you typically approach it with a little bit more knowledge about it than you would in a competition you know Um, because like you said somebody's already climbed it maybe you've seen a video of it or maybe you've already walked past it or heard about it so it is still called a, a boulder problem at that point but it's not nearly as intimidating, I would say, <laughs> when right. you have a little bit of knowledge about it ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And do you enjoy problem solving in other parts of your life besides climbing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Um, hmm. I wouldn't say that I'm drawn to it in other parts of my life, honestly. I'm a little bit more passive and I try to avoid conflict, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I think somebody who's really into problem solving would sort of run towards the, you know, challenges and say, cool, let's fix this. But I guess maybe that really comes out in my climbing and I'm a little bit more hesitant to be a problem solver in in real life. Although when there's direction from above, I'm, I'm, I'd like to think I'm pretty good at it. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess that I'm better at it in climbing maybe than I am in, in life. Well, so I'm thinking maybe your tolerance for problem solving, you're using up all of your tolerance 
for problem solving on your bouldering and and yeah. like you've expired all of it so like let's say you stop bouldering altogether you might start yearning for some problem solving uh in other yeah. parts of your life that's probably true because i do put a lot of time into the problem solving process in climbing i'm really drawn to long-term projects and you know throwing myself at a boulder problem for multiple years until i do it and so that is a lot of energy to devote to you know especially to devote to a single boulder problem uh, and i really love that process i do i guess that i just haven't quite found another avenue for that in my outside life you know life aside from climbing but like you said maybe when i you know if i'm not climbing as much at some point i'll be looking for that when we started talking about problem solving the thing that comes to my mind is like a job interview um because the behavioral job interview questions are always like well tell me about a time when you had to solve a problem and uh that like led to succeeding a goal right and then that had me thinking wait a minute aren't all these like professional rock climbers talking about how like an insecurity of theirs is oh i'm spending my years rock climbing and I don't know if I'm going to be able to get a job after this. Right. It's a valid concern of most climbers. But I feel like you'd crush a job interview. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, now that you, you know, when you say it that way, I guess it's interesting because the first thing that comes to mind in a job interview, and I have had job interviews, is when they say that, you think, oh, a problem that I've crushed or a problem that I've solved, well, great. Uh, well, there's there's a bunch of boulder problems that I've solved. <laughs> Every single day <laughs> of like, my life. Wait, yeah, that's all that I do. But to try to explain that to somebody who's interviewing you, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, you know, wait, what? I, I meant a, they, they're usually looking for a workplace problem or something mm-hmm. like that. And then you're thinking, well, wait, but the boulders are my workplace. Right. So, you know, this is perfect, but it is a little weird to try to answer those questions when most of your life has been spent out in the woods in front of rocks and that's the problem solving that you're doing. So I've, I've had to get creative with that in, in past (laughs) job interviews for sure. But I think that more than anything, a lot of climbers have very many skills. You know, the younger climbers have a lot of skills that, that a lot of people don't get to acquire when they're, when they're young, you know, they have really good exposure to different types of people different places, uh, tons of problem solving, even though they don't, they might not think of it that way. Um, there's lots of, you know, structured training and structured planning, things like that, that when you really sit down and look at it, we have a ton of skills that are, that can be applied to other things. But I think climbers are intimidated sometimes because it just feels like such a different world. You know, to go into a workplace if you've spent the past 10 years out at the boulders or, you know, in a competition setting or or something like that. It just feels like such a huge transition when maybe it's maybe it's really not. Yeah. You just have to sort of think about it in a different way. So, yeah, I think a lot of the young climbers have tons of skills. They just need to recognize them and kind of reframe them into a you know, well, wait, I could use this in a workplace. Yeah. But then comes the <laughs> the next crux of, do they want to? Right. Okay. Because that's <laughs> what I'm thinking. I'm, I'm like trying to figure out how you would even 
enjoy yourself in the workplace. But I guess, it, it, I mean, I don't want to overgeneralize. Right. But, yeah. And I, I mean, I, I struggle with that all the time. You know, I think, gosh, is there going to be a day when I have to transition away from a life that's very built around being outside and traveling and climbing all the time? Um, how am I going to handle that? And that's definitely intimidating. Yeah. But I think there's also the opportunity to get creative with it. You know, it doesn't have to be a certain way. That's what I've realized over the past couple of years that you don't have to fit into a certain mold all the time. There's a lot of opportunity to to sort of make your own way. Yeah. Yes. I like how I like how you have turned all of the potential insecurities and faced them with optimism. That's good. Yeah, I'm trying. Yeah. Well, that's that's like the only option I feel like. Sometimes. That's right. Um, <laughs> so, so I should tell you that I like looked at some more uh, job interview questions for like a behavioral interview, and I'm telling you, like, get here. Here's one. Give a specific example of a time when you use good judgment and logic in solving a problem. Check. Give an <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> give an example of a time when you set a goal and you're able to achieve it. Check. Check. Um, <laughs> Describe a time when you were faced with a stressful situation that determined your coping skills. Check. Right. Um, what else? Oh, yeah. There's been a lot of those, right? Yeah, right. right. <laughs> but, yeah, it's funny. You think about, like, going into a, a job interview with people who aren't climbers. And right. when you say that question about, you know, whatever the coping skills are, yeah, yeah. I they think about, understand. like, yeah, like, hey, could I explain to people that aren't climbers what it's like to be with Mike Lebecki in the middle of nowhere and, you know, talk about a stressful situation that you've never been in and all these coping mechanisms you use. And they would just look at you like you're crazy. Mm -hmm. I think (laughs) like, wait, what, why did you go there? Why would you do that? You know? Uh And I, you know, I bet it's the other way around too. They could probably describe some stuff to you and you'd be like, why, what are you doing? You know? Yep. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff. This is fun. Um, I want you to blow our minds with a gear recommendation. I know that's a lot to put on you. Um, we get one (laughs) from everybody and most of them have been really, really great. I like it when they're unique, uh, or they're technical, but honestly, it's up to you. So go ahead, blow our minds, Angie Payne. All right, so I have two because I can't pick just one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one is this mountain hardware pack. It's called the Scrambler 30, and it has this out-dry technology. I think Mike Lebecki talked about it. Basically, uh, it was my best friend in the jungle, sort of the pack that, that was bomb-proof that uh, put up with all the elements and survived the jungle trip and mm-hmm. all the water. Can you tell Can you tell us about the jungle trip? I'm interrupting your gear recommendation, <laughs> yes. but yes, jungle trip doesn't exactly do it justice. So the jungle trip, we I went with Mike Lebecki and two photographers, uh, Keith Lazinski and Andy Mann, and we went to French Polynesia to a small island called Uapau, and we climbed a tower on the island, and the tower was in the jungle and it was covered in mud basically mud and vegetation so we were out there for three weeks uh well we were actually out in the field a little bit longer than two weeks trying to climb this tower and we did get to the top of it mm-hmm. but it was very 
far outside of my comfort zone, I guess is what I would say. Mm -hmm. So it was something completely new for me. Uh, Mike had to aid climb the whole thing because it was so muddy. And I belayed and then followed and cleaned the pitches. So it was just unlike anything I've ever done. Let's say you had to describe the enjoyment of the experience during on a scale of 1 to 10 and then how you reflect on it on a scale of 1 to 10. Um, yeah, it was definitely a lot of type 2 fun. So I guess during the experience on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, most of the time while I was belaying or while I was in my tent and it was raining, I would say it was, you know, down below a 5, <laughs> 3 maybe. Uh-huh. Because uh, there was a lot of pretty stuff. Maybe it was a five some of the time, but I was pretty scared. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty outside of my comfort zone for sure and intimidated. But looking back, uh, it's definitely a 10. Nice. It is a solid 10 because uh, it's just one of those, you know, trips where I feel like I pushed myself and then I grew and learned things and had to get through some serious fear. So, yeah, it's one that I look back on very fondly now that all the that all the, you know, sort of uncomfortable memories have faded. We'll put some links on your profile page on our website. Yeah, there's a, the video is about to come out, actually. Cool. So that, it illustrates the trip very well. <laughs> nice. Well, by the time this is released, uh, the video will be and we'll yes. post that there. Nice. Um, OK, anyway, sorry. Back to your best. So, yeah. Scrambler, so my Scrambler 30, 30 was my best friend on that trip because it came up the wall with me every day we hung out together on the side of the wall while i blade mike and uh <laughs> yeah it was basically just just bomb proof we put everything on that trip through the ringer and that thing came out unscathed and i actually had to carry it on as my carry-on on the way home so wow sure the, the people on the plane probably <laughs> didn't appreciate that but yeah it, it made the whole journey <laughs> do you have uh, you have one more gear recommendation but do you have weird conversations with people on planes um i've had a couple weird ones i remember on the way back from greenland somebody was really surprised by the pack that i was carrying and that it had that it separated like that the top of it came off and they were really really into it (laughs) i remember talking about that but i actually before i got on the plane after uopau i I took an entire pack of wet wipes and wiped my entire bag down. Okay. Because <laughs> I was so scared that people were going to think that it smelled like death. So <laughs> I spent like a good 30 minutes trying to clean it up. <laughs> nice. To avoid any awkward conversations. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Other gear recommendations. Go. Okay. So I'm a boulder. So the crash pads that I carry are really my, you know, that's what saves me. Every time I fall. So uh, I've been using organic crash pads since I started bouldering, essentially. And I guess it's been more than 10 years since I started using those. And they are also bomb-proof. So I'm all about the stuff that holds up for a really long time that's made with care and high quality. And organic crash pads are definitely that thing in the bouldering world for me. If you're going bouldering and, and you can customize the colors and make cool designs on them and i'm all about that cool so yeah so if the scrambler 30 is your best friend what relationship would you say you have with your crash pads like what what's the equivalent relationship does that make sense 
Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I would say my crash pads are kind of like a parent. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we can we can make some some really bad you know analogies. Like, well, let's see, they're always on your back. I'm kidding, Um, but I just came up with that. But that was uh, great. That was really good. (laughs) You know, they save you when you fall. Basically, Uh there you don't really think about it too much until you're about to hit the ground, and there's your crash pad. Wow, parent parent is you know kind of your safety net. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's, that's good. Organic crash pads, Mountain Hardware, Scrambler 30 on Angie's Meister profile page. That's on our website, mtnmeister.com. Also, we we have got a quote from Angie. You don't know what you said yet, but I'll find it. Um, I don't know what I said, but I'm looking forward to hearing. (laughs) Nice. Well, you may, maybe you'll do it at the end of the interview. Who knows? Um, And also the episode's embedded there. If you want to listen again, we'll have a discussion forum. Some of you listen through the website. Also, we'll have conversation after the show from Angie, a little bit extra on gear. And if you buy our Play Director package through our website, you are able to ask whatever questions you would like to people like Angie. I let you know when I record with them and you get to ask your questions. All right. Finally, Angie. Who do you want to see as the next Mountain Meister? Mike Lebecki wanted to hear from you. Who do you want to hear? All right. So I think that you should talk to Ethan Pringle. Uh, You guys probably heard of him. Mm -hmm. He just recently finished a really long-term sport climbing project of his. And I actually have grown up with Ethan through the youth climbing and comp climbing circuits and we actually traveled to Greenland together a couple years ago with Mike Lebecki. Mm. So he's sort of a member of that crew when I think of Lebecki. So I think you should talk to him. That's cool. And then maybe we'll get all three of you on together. Oh well that'd be that'd be amazing. That'd be a the, re- riot, the reunion. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Greenland reunion podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Ethan Pringle, hopefully hear him on a future episode of Mountain Meister. Angie, wonderful having you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me. My pleasure. You can follow Angie, angiepain.com. She's also on Instagram, and according to your bio, you take all of your pictures with your iPhone and edit them there. Is that true? That is true. I'm an Instagram purist, That's, I guess, still. <laughs> those pictures, knowing that you took those from an iPhone, which means that you can compare your pictures with my pictures, because those are also <laughs> taken with an iPhone, is very depressing on my <laughs> behalf. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice, it's a fun challenge. I still, uh, I still try to do that, so we'll see how long I last with the iPhone. <laughs> That was Angie Payne, or Ange, if you're really close to her, or Angela, if you want to annoy her. Seriously, follow her on Instagram. We'll have the link to her on her Meister profile page on our website. There's this picture of a dragonfly, and I have no idea how she got that close to it with an iPhone. There are a lot of pictures like that, honestly, and I also have no idea how she takes all of these with her iPhone. The colors are incredible. Uh, It's amazing how much better she is than I am at this. Anyway, thanks for listening to today's episode. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget, you can check out the shout-out package on our support page. 
That helps us out. Also, all the other donation options do because this podcast costs money, believe it or not. And the only way we can keep this going is from generous folks like you. So thank you for that. And thank you for listening to another episode of Mountain Meister. Until the next time you hear my voice, my name is Ben Shank. I'm the host of this wonderful podcast. Enjoy doing the rest of whatever else you do while you listen. This is Mountain Meister. Mountain Meister.